Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, March 27th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. As you're probably already tired of hearing by now, once again, we've released some more of our podcasts on CDs. The um, a, a two-volume disc set of uh, a two-CD disc set, I should say, of the um, the commentary on the Gospel of Luke that we did during the year 2012. There are also some um, some other podcasts in that set which were pertinent to events at Christogenia at the time, or things that we were addressing. We also released um, 70-some-odd podcasts from Clifton Emheiser, from, from um, Stan Adams's reading of Clifton Emheiser's Watchman's Teaching Letters, which are superbly done. They are definitely, they're exquisite. They're much better quality than my podcast, I'll tell you that. That they're, um, each, each podcast has one of Clifton Emheiser's teaching letters, along with some comments by Dan. And, and um, they're good and well done, and they will be available by year. And the first six years are available now. I pray that um, next year we will have a new release, including the um, at, at least a good portion more of Clifton's work. With that being said, I don't um, sell CDs on my site because I want to make money. Everybody with any common sense knows that Christian identity is not the way to make money. If I wanted to make money, I'd be off writing computer programs or working at Walmart. If um, the CDs are a good way to organize a library of our podcasts, that's fine, and I would be humbled that people bought them for that reason. I really hope that people <clears throat> buy them as an evangelical tool to spread our message to people beyond the Internet, because not everybody will go to a website and, and listen to podcasts, but if you hand somebody a CD that they could pop into an MP3 player or, or, or a CD player that plays MP3s, then what we might be more effective in getting people, more people to listen to our message. And that's why I'm selling CDs. Hopefully uh, soon, when the smoke clears a little, we'll be able to work on books. And, and um, we have a few ideas in, in line for that. There's, there's plenty of material that Christiania produced for, for probably a book every six months or so, but it takes a lot of work and, and time out from producing new material to format and, and proofread books. So that, that's a challenge in itself. Now we will commence with our presentation of Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians. This is part five in this series. It's subtitled, The Ministry of Reconciliation. We had left off at the end of part four, midway through 2 Corinthians chapter five, and we won't finish it tonight. 
there's much to discuss concerning this portion of Paul's epistles. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul has started off the epistle by writing about the sufferings and the consolation or encouragement which the children of Yahweh should expect to have for as long as they are in the flesh. Then, while explaining the changes he had made in his own travel plans because of his relationship with the Corinthians, since indeed he was on his way to visit the Corinthians, he talked about all the grief which had been caused within the assembly of Corinth on account of a certain individual, who was with certainty that fornicator of his earlier epistle to the Corinthians, whom he had addressed explicitly at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. During that discussion, Paul had encouraged the Corinthians here in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2, Paul had encouraged the Corinthians, since they chose to be forgiving of that individual, that their forgiveness must be complete and that they should confirm their love for him and also put an end to the grief which they had regarding his sin. Paul then continued to further discuss his travels and the sufferings the Christian should expect to face in the flesh, which he himself was realizing during those travels. In chapter 3 of this epistle, Paul had asked quite rhetorically whether he should be introduced to the assembly of Corinth, an assembly which he himself had initiated and where he had spent over 18 months of his life. With that, in a rather esoteric manner, Paul began to explain the differences between the Old and the New Covenants, and that the Old Covenant was rendered idle in the New Covenant service of the Spirit in Christ. From there, he discussed the treasure in earthen vessels, which is the spirit, the inner spirit of the Adamic man, and the restoration of that spirit in the reconciliation to God, which it has in Christ. With this, Paul explained that it is the unseen rewards for which men should strive in their fleshly walk, or sojourn, as he had called it. Now, Paul will come back around in a circle to allude to the fornicator once again. Here in this later half, of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Doing all of this, Paul is actually giving a quite lengthy lesson on why Christians should have forgiveness for their kindred Christians when they sin. Paul accomplishes this beginning in verse 12 by denying that he should introduce himself anew to the assembly of Corinth, which is evidently his way of saying that introductions are unnecessary because he himself has not changed, and that therefore renewal of introductions is not necessary. Then he informs the assembly that his attitude towards God has not changed either. And it is that position in regards to God which requires him to be temperate with the assembly.
As we have seen earlier in these presentations, where Paul himself had explained it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, although Paul had demanded that the assembly put out the man who had committed fornication with his father's wife, the assembly had instead chosen to forgive that man. Therefore, Paul realized that if the assembly chose to be forgiving, then he must in turn accept that forgiveness as he had explained where he said in chapter 2, verse 10. Now to anyone whom you are obliging, likewise I am. And for my part, whoever I oblige, if anyone I oblige, it is for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Here, without mentioning the fornicator explicitly, Paul explains why this must be so. Evidently, the people whom Paul said had inflated themselves and were boasting concerning this incident may not have been forgiving of this man or were falling short of exhibiting Christian love in some other way, since it is apparent that Paul is writing this to convince someone of the assembly of Corinth of the need for forgiveness. And we do not, we, we do not know what the letter said which Paul received back from Corinth after they had received and read Paul's first epistle to them which concern this matter. We don't know what Corinthians had sent back to Paul, so we can only imagine that Paul, what Paul is addressing as he writes this second letter, which is discussing this same topic. Paul is writing to convince someone of the need for forgiveness in the assembly of Corinth. Doing this, while to the casual reader, it seems as though Paul has changed the topic several times during the course of this second epistle, actually, Paul has not changed the topic at all. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm sorry, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul discussed affliction and encouragement because the Edenic man, in his fleshly nature, is a creature afflicted from both within and without. Paul contrasted the Old Covenant service of death and letters to the New Covenant service of the Spirit in Christ, because the service of the Spirit is one of mercy and forgiveness for sin, where the Old Covenant letter of the law had left men little room for such things so long as they were in the flesh as the violation of the letter of the law in many cases required the death of the individual who committed certain sins. There was no room for any benefit in repentance from sin in the flesh. While in the new covenant, all men are urged to repent from sin on account of the revelation of the greater purpose of God, which was revealed in Christ. Paul's discussion of the eternal spirit of man was made in part to illustrate the higher purpose for which the Adamic man was created 
And now, here in this later half of chapter 5, Paul will illustrate that all men require verse in order to attain that purpose. As he tells us later in his epistle to the Romans, all men have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Christ, not excluding any of the children of Israel from his plan for mercy, men should in turn have that same mercy upon their brethren so long as they are repentant and willing to abide in Christ. With this, we shall commence from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12. We do not again introduce ourselves to you rather giving to you an occasion of boasting on our behalf in order that you should hold up against those boasting in appearance and not in heart. Here Paul answers the rhetorical question which he had asked at the beginning of chapter 3 where he said, do we begin anew to introduce ourselves or do we as some need letters of introduction to you or from you. This also helps to show that these are not disparate topics which Paul is discussing throughout this epistle, but that all of these different topics which he has presented are indeed related parts being interwoven for a greater purpose. If Paul has not changed, then a renewal of introductions between himself and the assembly of Corinth is not necessary, since Paul is asserting that he is one and the same Paul whom the assembly had come to know and love several years earlier when he was in Corinth. As we saw from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 19, and chapter 5, verse 2. There were people among the assembly of Corinth who were inflated and who had not mourned regarding the fornicator among them. These people were portrayed as having boasted, evidently vaunting themselves against the assembly. If Paul is not changed, then his steadfast attitude gives support to the assembly as a whole which had chosen to forgive this fornicator. <clears throat> By that, the assembly is given a reason to boast because they can support themselves with the assertion that Paul is in agreement with them. Seeing that this is the same Paul who had brought them the gospel, Paul is agreeing with them in the spirit of the gospel which he had at first brought to them. Paul substantiates this assessment in the next verse, where he states, For either we change our position with Yahweh, or we are temperate with you. Paul must be temperate with the assembly, because at the first reaction, at his first reaction to the fornicator, he was very stringent. He demanded that the sinner be expelled from the assembly. 
This demand is in accordance with the service of death in letters of the Old Covenant, put out the sinner from among you, which was the letter of the law, which Paul contrasted to the service of the Spirit of the New Covenant in chapter 3 of the epistle. Ostensibly, Paul must be temperate and accept the assembly's forgiveness of the fornicator. And if he fails to do so, then here in this passage, he characterizes that failure as a deviation from his own gospel. This is in accordance with the spirit of the law written on the hearts of the children of Israel, which incorporates the opportunities for, for, for repentance and forgiveness which are in Christ. And that is the service of the spirit. Paul also substantiates this assessment with his statement in verses 14 and 15, which follow. And he says, the love of Christ constrains us. Having decided this, since one has been slain on behalf of all, then all have been slain. And on behalf of all, he has been slain in order that those who are living would no longer live for themselves, but for he who had been slain on behalf of them and has been raised. Now, now we're going to talk about certain elements of this passage at great length, and mostly because of the various degrees of Pharisaism found even among some identity Christians. Pharisaism, self-righteousness, things that Christians should be aware of and not concede to and not give themselves over to. We should correct our brethren with humility. In Isaiah chapter 53, Yahweh God announces the purpose of the passion of the Christ from verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Notice that there are no stated exceptions. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. He opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. Of course, this is speaking of Christ. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? That word may have been translated race. It may have been translated birth. For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. 
and he made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased Yahweh to bruise him. He has put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, proving that Yahshua is indeed Yahweh incarnate. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. The promise of Yahweh to forgive all of the sins of the children of Israel, where there are no stated exceptions, is found in Isaiah chapter 43, from verse 25. I, even I, am he that blots out thy transgressions for my own sake, and will not remember thy sins. Put me in remembrance, let us plead together. Declare thou that thou mayest be justified. <clears throat> this promise is also found in Isaiah chapter 44, in direct connection to the prophesied redemption. Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for thou art my servant, I have formed thee. Thou art my servant, O Israel. Thou shalt not be forgotten of me. I blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. It is also found in Isaiah chapter 45 where it promises. But Israel shall be saved in Yahweh with an everlasting salvation. Ye shall not be ashamed nor confounded, world without end. And then it says in verse 25, In Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. No stated exceptions. The promise of Yahweh God to forgive all the sins of the children of Israel where no exceptions are made, is also found in Jeremiah chapter 31, in direct connection with the promised new covenant, where it states in part, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Likewise, in Jeremiah chapter 50, the word of Yahweh says, In those days, and in that time, saith Yahweh, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought for, and there shall be none, and the sins of Judah, and they shall not be found, for I will pardon them whom I reserve. We see yet another prophecy of the cleansing of all the sins of Israel in Ezekiel chapter 37, where the prophet is told, and say unto them, thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, whither they shall be gone, and will gather them on every side, 
and bring them into their own land. <clears throat> and I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king to them all. And they shall be no more two nations. Neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. Neither shall they defile themselves any more with all their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. That's repentance. But I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned, and will cleanse them. So shall they be my people, and I will be their God. And David my servant shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd, and they shall also walk in my judgments, and observe my statutes, and do them. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt, and they shall dwell therein, even they, and their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. In the prophecy of Messiah, found in Daniel chapter 9, we see further the purpose of the Christ. Seventy weeks are determined upon my people and upon my holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sin. Of course, people kept sinning, but they wouldn't be judged by the law any longer, as we will see in Romans chapter 7. And to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and the prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. There is a higher purpose to the creation of Adamic man, which is reflected in both the prophets and in the gospel of Christ. Paul explained this purpose in part in Romans chapters 5 and 6. The children of Israel were cleansed of all their sins with the passion of the Christ because, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 7, the husband died in order to release the wife from the law of the husband. Yahweh God was married to the children of Israel as a nation. And when the children of Israel committed idolatry and joined themselves to other nations, they were found to be adulterers in the eyes of God. The penalty for adultery under the law is death. And the entire nation of the children of Israel were liable for that penalty. Therefore, they are encouraged to pursue that higher purpose. As in Romans chapter 6, Paul had said, But now, having been liberated from sin and becoming bondmen to Yahweh, you have your profit in sanctification, and the result is life for eternity. So in the Old Testament, the disobedient children of Israel were described as having made a covenant with death. And on account of the unconditional promises which Yahweh had made with Abraham, their covenant with death would not be permitted to stand. The word of Yahweh says in Isaiah, Because you have said, we have made 
a covenant with death, and with hell are we at agreement. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us, for we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood have we hid ourselves. Therefore, thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I lay in Zion a prophecy of Christ to annul the covenant with death. Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believes shall not make haste. Judgment also will I lay to the line and righteousness to the plummet. And the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and the waters shall overflow the hiding place, and your covenant with death shall be disannulled, and your agreement with hell shall not stand. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, then ye shall be trodden down by it. Likewise, in conjunction with the promise of the new covenant, where Yahweh says in Jeremiah chapter 31 that behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. He then says that thus saith Yahweh, which gives the sun for a light by day and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, who divides the sea when the waves thereof roar, Yahweh of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, in other words, when there's no more sun, moon, and stars, saith Yahweh, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. So as long as there is sun, moon, and stars, the seed of Israel are a nation, a people somewhere here on earth. Thus saith Yahweh, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, saith Yahweh. So the seed of Israel would live, they would not die, in spite of their own actions, which under the law had merited death. Death was the penalty of the law. Yet Yahweh had promised in these several places that Israel would live. In order to satisfy his own law, he was incarnated and died as a man for the benefit of the children of Israel so that they would be released from the law. Doing this, the letter of the law was satisfied, and Yahweh God manifested his great love for his children while also manifesting his keeping of his own law, even when the children of Israel obviously could not. Paul explains this in Romans chapter 7, where he says in part, for the woman which has a husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he lives. 
But if the husband is dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. This is foundational to understanding the New Testament. And this is a part of the milk of the gospel. Yahweh promised to gather the dispersed of Israel in Christ, meaning those Israelites who were dispersed all the way back from the time of the captivity in Egypt until the last of the Babylonian deportations and even beyond that. Yahweh promised to cleanse all of Israel. And therefore, in chapter 11 of the Gospel of John, we read that Christ should die for that nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he should gather together in one, as we saw in Jeremiah, in Isaiah, in Ezekiel, gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. It is those scattered Israelites of whom Yahweh speaks when he tells Peter in Acts chapter 10 that what God has cleansed, make not thou common. Peter's first epistle demonstrates his recognition of that fact. We will discuss that next week. Explaining that Christ had died on behalf of all, and with certainty, meaning all of Israel, in accordance with the promises in the prophets and his own explanation to these Corinthians that they are indeed of the dispersed of Israel, as we had seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul asserts that Christ had even died on behalf of this fornicator. Since the assembly at Corinth had chosen to forgive the fornicator, ostensibly the fornicator must have been repentant of his sin. For the mercy and forgiveness of Christ in this life, one must repent of one's sin, as it is illustrated throughout the gospel. And without Christ, the Israelite remains subject to the judgments of the law, as Paul said in his epistle to the Hebrews, that without Christ, there is no longer propitiation for sin. Therefore, even though Paul had formerly demanded that the fornicator be expelled from among them, which is in accordance with the law, now he sees that he must accept the forgiveness which the assembly has extended to the sinner. Therefore, he wrote, either we change our position with God or we are temperate with you. As when Peter had asked, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? Then Christ himself had answered, I say unto thee, not until seven times, until seventy times seven. Here Paul is making a lengthy and definitive example of the magnitude of the mercy for the children of Israel, which is in Christ. Paul is explaining 
that he would no longer insist that the assembly should expel the fornicator, but would instead be temperate, as in Christ we must all forgive our repentant brethren. Consequently, verse 16, we from thereafter know no one in relation to flesh. Even if we had known Christ in relation to flesh, yet now we no longer know. And the second half of this verse in our assessment, where it says, even if we had known Christ in relation to flesh, is only a rhetorical argument made to strengthen the point which Paul asserts in the first half of the verse, where he says, consequently, we thereafter know no one in relation to flesh. By thereafter, Paul must mean to refer to the time at which, since one has been slain on behalf of all, then all have been slain. Paul explains this in a different way in Romans chapter 6, where he wrote, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not? that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death, the legitimate Christian baptism. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Stating that we from thereafter know no one in relation to flesh, in relation to the fact that Christ had died on behalf of all, to forgive the sins of all who turn to Christ, Paul is making an example that the Corinthians should follow that Christians should not seek to know one another carnally. To be carnally minded is something which Paul expounds upon in Romans chapter 8, where he wrote from verse 1, Now then, there is no condemnation to those among the number of Christ. His mercy is complete. Indeed, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Yahshua has liberated you from the law of sin and death. The law is powerless in that it has been weak over the flesh. The law is only our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Yahweh sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And amidst sin, condemned sin in the flesh that the judgment of the law should be fulfilled among us who walk not in accordance with the flesh, but in accordance with the Spirit. For they who are in accordance with the flesh strive after the things of the flesh, and they who are in accordance with the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Indeed, the purpose of the flesh is death, but the purpose of the Spirit 
life and peace. Because the purpose of the flesh is hostile to Yahweh, then to the law of Yahweh, it is not obedient. This is man's lesson. Neither is it able to be. And they that are in the flesh are not able to satisfy God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of Yahweh dwells in you, and if one has not the spirit of Christ, he is not of him. If you're not a member of the Adamic race that has that born from above spirit bestowed upon the Adamic man, as Paul explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's sown a natural seed. It's raised a spiritual seed. If there is a natural body, then there is a spiritual body. It's not a matter of believing. It's a matter of being born from above. The natural body comes first and then the spiritual. However, you are not in the flesh, but in spirit, if indeed the spirit of Yahweh dwells in you. And if one has not the spirit of Christ, he is not of him. But if Christ is in you, indeed the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit alive because of righteousness. Moreover, if the spirit of he who raised Yahshua from the dead dwells in you, he who raises the anointed from the dead will also produce alive your mortal bodies to his spirit that dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are obligated not to the flesh to live in accordance with the flesh. For if in accordance with the flesh you live, you are about to die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There is one further realization here which Christians should make. If Paul asserts that we, from thereafter, know no one in relation to the flesh, then in Romans chapter 8, he said that they who are in accordance with the flesh strive after the things of the flesh. Then Christians should know not to ignore the failings of their brethren who remain carnally minded. They are unrepentant but rather to disassociate themselves from them, at least until they also turn to Christ. Indeed, Paul shall exhibit this at length in his exhortation found later in this epistle, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 17, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, if one is among the number of Christ, a new creation, the old things pass away. Behold, new things have come. And the Christian admonition is to become conformed to the image of Christ, which is in every Adamic man. Adamic man was made in his image. We have that image in us. If indeed the spirit of Christ is in us, so we must conform ourselves to it in our fleshly walk. That's the Christian challenge. 
There are two variations of this last clause, which are found in the Greek texts of many later manuscripts. The clause I refer to is, Behold, new things have come, in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Two variations of this last clause are only found in the later Greek manuscripts, like from the 10th century and later, either of which we may read in English as, Behold, all things have become new. The King James Version has followed these later manuscripts, where the text of the Christogenian New Testament, where it has, new things have come, follows the 3rd century papyrus, P46, the codices, Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, Ephraim Siri, Claromontanus, Vaticanus, Gracchus, all of the um, 4th and 5th and 6th century codexes. The Codex Alexandrinus is not listed here because that manuscript is actually wanting all of 2 Corinthians 4.14 into chapter 12, verse 6. They are missing in that manuscript. It must have been damaged at some point in time. At Isaiah 43.19, where the King James Version has, Behold, I will do a new thing. The Septuagint Greek begins that verse with three, or in some manuscripts, four words. Ego means behold. Ego is the explicit word for I. It's not necessary, but some manuscripts have it. Poyo kahina, which is I do new things. And for that, Sir Francis Brenton, in his English version, had written, Behold, I will do new things, adding the word will, which he placed in italics. In Revelation, the revelation of Yahshua Christ, chapter 21, verse 5, this passage of Isaiah is invoked again. And the texts of the most ancient copies of the Greek manuscripts are quite consistent where the King James Version has, Behold, I make all things new. And the Christianity New Testament agrees with the reading of that Greek, and it says, Behold, I shall make all new things. But the text of the Revelation in this instance may surely refer to something new, and not necessarily to the same things referred to. Isaiah, which Paul is quoting. The revelation follows after Paul. And here Paul is interpreting the words of Isaiah 43, 19, as they refer to his theme here in this epistle. We say interpreting because Paul is not quoting them directly. 
but rather he is treating them as an accomplished fact, and he is professing their fulfillment. Here in this passage, Paul's Greek words read edu, which is behold, gaganen kahina. Now, gaganen is a perfect tense verb, to be, which means that something has already become. Kahina means new things. The verb is in the perfect tense, so we read, new things have come in the Christian New Testament, which is exactly what Paul's saying. In order to understand what it is that Paul is referencing by citing this passage from Isaiah, He's alluding to this passage, but he's also interpreting it and is insisting that these new things that Isaiah 43, 19 is mentioning, is referencing, have already come to pass. In order to understand what Paul is referencing by citing this passage from Isaiah, we must go back and examine what it is that Isaiah was referring to. <clears throat> Reading Isaiah chapters 42 and 43, which Paul is citing here, we see that transition from one state to another is the theme of Isaiah's prophecy of Yahweh's purpose concerning the children of Israel. The prophecy of Isaiah is a prophecy of captivity for Israel and Judah, which is already unfolding as Isaiah writes. Since Isaiah is writing when Israel is being taken away captive by the Assyrians. Yet the entire later portion of Isaiah, from chapter 41 onwards, is a message of encouragement to Israel in captivity, that Israel is the servant race of Yahweh, even while the children of Israel are taken captive, is ascertained in Isaiah chapter 41, from verse 8, where he states, But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend, thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, and called thee from the chief men thereof, and said unto thee, Thou art my servant, I have chosen thee, and not cast thee away. Yahweh was working with Israel even though Israel was being taken away into Assyrian captivity. Therefore, in Isaiah chapter 42, we also read from verse 1, Behold, my servant, upon, I'm sorry, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, he shall bring forth judgment to the nations. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flag shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged, 
till he has set judgment in the earth, and the isle shall wait for his law. That's because the children of Israel had been dispersed into those isles and coastlands of Europe. Thus saith Yahweh God, he that created the heavens and stretched them out, he that spread forth the earth and that which comes out of it, he that gives bread unto the people upon it and spirit to them that walk therein. For I, Yahweh, have called thee in righteousness and will uphold thy hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people for a light of the nations to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. I am Yahweh. That is my name. And my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things are come to pass, and here is where Paul's quote has shows where its source is here and in chapter 43. Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing unto Yahweh a new song, and his praise from the end of the earth, ye that go down to the sea, and all that is therein, the isles and the inhabitants thereof. Now, many universalists reading this scripture may want to stop here and somehow imagine that the nations of races of other races other than the children of Israel could be included in these promises of these new things. However, that is contrary to the other promises of God concerning the new covenant. And it is certainly not the case when we read further in Isaiah. Verse 13. Yahweh shall go forth as a mighty man. He shall stir up jealousy like a man of war. He shall cry, yet roar. He shall prevail against his enemies. I have long time holding my peace. I have been still and refrained myself. Now will I cry like a travailing woman. I will destroy and devour at once. I will make waste mountains and hills and dry up all their herbs. And I will make the rivers islands and I will dry up the pools. And I will bring the blind. And the children of Israel have already been defined as the blind, they will be again shortly. And I will bring the blind by a way that they knew not. These are the new things Yahweh declared in the verses immediately preceding this. And I will bring the blind by a way that they knew not. I will lead them in paths that they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked things straight. These things will I do unto them and not forsake them, the blinder Yahweh's people Israel. 
They shall be turned back, meaning they shall repent, be turned back to God. They shall be greatly ashamed to trust in graven images. Let's <clears throat> say to the molten images, ye are our gods. Hear ye deaf, and look ye blind, that ye may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf, as my messenger that I sent? Who is blind as he that is perfect, and blind as the Lord's servant? Seeing many things, thou observest not, opening the ears, but he hears not. Yahweh is well pleased for his righteousness' sake. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. But this is a people robbed and spoiled. They are all of them snared in holes, and they are hid in prison houses. They are for a prey, and none delivers, for a spoil, and none saith, Restore. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will hearken and hear for the time to come? Who gave Jacob for a spoil and Israel to robbers? These are the new things Yahweh declared. Did not Yahweh, he against whom we have sinned, for they would not walk in his ways, neither were they obedient unto his law. Therefore, he has poured upon him the fury of his anger and the strength of battle, and it has set him on fire round about. Yet he knew it not, and it burned him. Yet he laid it not to heart. And here, those other races and nations are described as robbers. Yahweh is working with the children of Israel. He is only using those other nations in the punishment of Israel. That's the only way that they come into play here. This is the new thing which Yahweh declares as he states in Isaiah 42.9. And again, as Paul cites, Isaiah 43.19. The former things which came to pass are the old kingdoms of Israel and Judah, which are now determined to be destroyed. The new thing is the judgment upon Israel, the destruction of the other nations which resulted from Israel's judgment, and the scattering of Israel that they may later be regathered in Christ. That's the new thing. Therefore, Yahweh says, further of the captivity into which Israel would go forth in Isaiah chapter 43, but now, thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not burn. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am Yahweh thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt, these are those other nations everybody's concerned with, Yahweh gave them up. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Sheba for thee, gave them up. 
Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable. I have loved thee, and therefore will I give men for thee, and people for thy life. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east, and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone that is called by my name, that can only be the children of Israel, where Yahweh said that earlier, he called them by thy name. Everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him. Yeah, I have made him. Bring forth the blind people that have eyes and the deaf that have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Not too many. Let them bring forth their witnesses that they may be justified, or let them hear and say it is truth. Speaking to Israel, ye are my witnesses, saith Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. The same words Christ used, I am he. Before me, there was no God formed. Neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am Yahweh, and besides me there is no Savior. I have declared and have saved, and I have showed when there was no strange God among you, therefore ye are my witnesses, saith Yahweh, that I am God. Yeah, before the day was, I am he. Christ said, before Abraham was, I am. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I will work, and who shall let it? Who shall allow it or accept it? Thus saith Yahweh, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake have I sent to Babylon and that brought down all their nobles and the Chaldeans whose cry is in the ships. And this is stated in prophecy as a fact before it is actually accomplished. I am Yahweh, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your king. Thus saith Yahweh, who makes a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters, which brings forth the chariot and the horse and the army and the tower. They shall lie down together. They shall not rise. They are extinct. They are quenched as toe. Remember ye not the former things, neither consider the things of old. Israel, in their captivity, certainly forgot their former identity and did not consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? The new thing is this. 
I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. As, as Jeremiah says, the people who were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness. The woman with the 12 stars of Revelation chapter 12. These new things which Yahweh has promised to do in Isaiah are the things which he would do with the children of Israel as a matter of their punishment and promised future restoration. Therefore, Paul of Tarsus will conclude what he says concerning these things here in this chapter to Corinthians by referring to his ministry as a ministry of reconciliation. These new things are to bring Israel through the wilderness where they will be preached the gospel in Europe. Israel according to the flesh, behold the nations. Israel according to the flesh, what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to idols and not to God. Here we see an appeal to Israel being put off in captivity, that they stop their idolatry and return to their God. Paul is effecting that return. In Isaiah, chapter 49, Yahweh once again affirms his relationship with the children of Israel where he states from verse 3, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And then in verse 4, And now saith Yahweh that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him. Though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of Yahweh, and my God shall be my strength. This is the message of reconciliation, to bring Jacob again to him. Paul calls the purpose of his ministry, the ministry of reconciliation. And none of the people of the ancient Assyrian deportations were ever known as Jews. And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Israel. And to, re I'm sorry, the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the nations, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. Thus saith Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel, and his Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to a servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise. Princes also shall worship because of Yahweh who is faithful and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee. Nobody else. 
Abraham was promised that kings would come from his loins and many nations from his seed. This is what Paul explains the fulfillment of in Romans chapter 4. And this is what kings and nations Isaiah refers to here. And it is still, even in their captivity, though Israel not be gathered, it is still Israel who are the chosen, the same Israel, not some church. Thus saith Yahweh, in an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in a day of salvation have I helped thee, and I will preserve thee and give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate heritages. And as we are about to see in the next segment of this presentation, Yahweh willing, Paul cites this very verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, once again in reference to its fulfillment. The children of Israel before before 700 B.C. were prophesied to establish the earth. And they did, because they were the Scythians. They were the Parthians, they were the Celts, they were the Greeks, and they were the Romans. Diverse dispersions of the children of Israel, every one of them. That thou mayest say to the prisoners, captive Israel, go forth, to them that are in darkness show yourselves they shall feed in the ways and their pastures shall be in all high places they shall not hunger nor thirst neither shall the heat nor sun smite them for he that has mercy on them shall lead them. Even by the springs of water shall he guide them. As we read in John 6.35, And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believes in me shall never thirst. And I will make all my mountains away, and my highways shall be exalted. Behold, these shall come from afar, and lo, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Sinim, or the south. Sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth, and break forth into singing, O mountains. For Yahweh has comforted his people and will have mercy upon his afflicted. This, in part, and with all certainty, is the comfort and affliction Paul makes reference to here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. But Zion said, Yahweh has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. And he answered to that, because we don't always see the dialogue in the, in the King James Version. 
Can a woman forget her sucking child? That she should not have compassion on a son of her womb. Yeah, they may forget. Meaning Israel can forget. Yet will I not forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. I don't have to make a reference to what palms of my hands means. Thy children shall make haste. Thy destroyers and they that made thee waste shall go forth of thee, meaning depart from. Lift up thine eyes round about, and behold, all these gather themselves together and come to thee. As I live, saith Yahweh, thou shalt surely clothe thee with them all, meaning all of Israel's enemies. Israel will take and make ornaments of trophies. As I live, saith Yahweh, thou shalt surely clothe thee with them all, as with an ornament, and bind them on me as a bride does. For thy waste and thy desolate places, and the land of thy destruction, shall even now be too narrow by reason of the inhabitants. And they that swallow thee up shall be far away, and Israel shall be given a new land as it is also promised in Genesis 49:50, 2 Samuel 7:10, The children which thou shalt have, after thou hast lost the other, shall say again in thine ears, The place is too straight for me. Give place to me that I may dwell. Europe. Then shalt thou say in thine heart, Europe wasn't in the text, by the way, then shalt thou say in thine heart, Who has begotten me these? Seeing I have lost my children, and am desolate, a captive, and removing to and fro. And who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. These, where had they been? Romans, Greeks, Celts. Thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I will lift up mine hand to the nations, and set up my standard to the people. And they shall bring thy sons in their arms, and thy daughters shall be carried upon their shoulders. In a new land, Israel would become as the sand of the sea, as it says in Hosea chapter 1. Then said God, call his name Loami, for ye are not my people, and I will not be your God. Yet the number of the the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said unto them, You are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, Ye are the sons of the living God. <laughs> the same people that were his people and were not his people, would be his people again. The gospel of reconciliation. And kings shall be thy nursing fathers, and their queens thy nursing mothers. 
They shall bow down to thee with their face toward the earth and lick up the dust of thy feet. And thou shalt know that I am Yahweh. For they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. Shall the prey be taken from the mighty or the lawful captive delivered? But thus saith Yahweh, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away, and the prey of the terrible shall be delivered. For I will contend with him that contends with thee, and I will save thy children. Isaiah didn't live to see it, but a hundred years later, Nineveh was destroyed. And I will feed them that oppress thee with their own flesh. Two hundred years later, Babylon was destroyed, and they shall be drunk with their own blood. As with sweet wine, that describes the fall of ancient Babylon for sure. And all flesh shall know that I, Yahweh, am thy Savior and thy Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. And we await these things again of Mystery Babylon. The last few verses of Isaiah chapter 49 relates to Yahweh's vengeance against his enemies, which has only happened in part since these days, and are not fulfilled until chapter 19 of the Revelation is fulfilled. However, here in Isaiah 49, we see the children of Israel referred to as desolate in verse 21 and of having many children, although Israel as a people was put off from God and not even cognizant of those children. This portrayal is also an allegory related to the blindness of Israel, that the people of Israel would not even know who they were in their captivity. As throughout these chapters of Isaiah, Yahweh portrays Israel as being blind. In Isaiah chapter 54, the children of Israel in their captivity are described as desolate once again, where we read, saying, O barren, that did not bear, break forth into singing, and cry aloud, Thou that did not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith Yahweh. And ostensibly the desolate are Israel in captivity. The married wife refers to Israel within the Old Covenant prior to captivity. Israel would become more numerous in captivity than she was, than she ever was in the Old Kingdom, and that accords with the words of Hosea, that they should greatly enlarge themselves after they became not my people. Enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes, for thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the nations. 
streets and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame, for thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, the captivity, the destruction of the old kingdom, and shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood any more. God having to die for the children of Israel. For thy maker is thine husband. Yahweh of hosts is his name. And thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. Yahweh shall be called the God of the whole earth. Because the children of Israel are destined to inherit the whole earth which is yet to be fulfilled, as it says in Jeremiah chapter 30. For I am with thee, saith Yahweh, to save thee, though I make a full end of all nations, where I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure, and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. And their punishment the children of Israel would be spread throughout the whole earth. This was the purpose of Yahweh God, as it has been stated here in these chapters of Isaiah. And it was already promised to the patriarchs of Israel in the promises to Abraham, the promises to Isaac and Jacob, and the blessings of the twelve tribes by Jacob and later by Moses, that the children of Israel would become many nations, companies of nations, and those nations and their kings would come out of the loins of those patriarchs. In their prophecy punishment, all of these promises to the children of Israel would be fulfilled in spite of their sins. In Romans chapter 4, as well as in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul had expressed the fulfillment of these very things. And here again, he alludes to them by citing these chapters of Isaiah. The new creation is the reformation of Israel, which Yahweh God had also described in Jeremiah chapter 18 in the parable of the potter. That the first time the potter took the mold, took the clay and made a, a molded pot out of it, it was marred in the hands of the potter. So he took the same clay and remolded it. That remolding is what Isaiah describes here. That new thing has already come in the eyes of Paul of Tarsus because he can identify the children of Israel in their new homes, in their new land. So his ministry is a ministry of reconciliation. In verse 18, which follows, Paul qualifies his statement in verse 17 
which states, therefore, if one is among the number of Christ, a new creation, the old things pass away. Behold, new things have come. And Paul says in verse 18, but all things from Yahweh, all things from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and is giving the service of reconciliation to us. The King James Version begins verse 18 with the statement, and all things are of God. That's not right. The word are is in italics, indicating that the translators added it to the text. The reading is patently dishonest. The particle, which stands at the beginning of the translations here, is the adversative particle, day or da, and not the conjunctive particle, kahi. Kahi is usually translated as and in English. Kahi is the simple conjunction, this and that and that. Joseph Thayer, in his Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, says that da is a particle adversative, distinctive, disjunctive, not conjunctive, and defines it primarily as but or moreover in some contexts, because that's really copulative. Liddell and Scott, in the large ninth edition of their Greek-English lexicon, state that the particle is adversative and copulative. Now, it's important to note that Liddell and Scott didn't say that dare was adversative or copulative. They said adversative and copulative. Even if it is read in the copulative sense here, it is to distinguish what proceeds and to add the word are, A-R-E, as if it were instead stating a fact by itself is a dishonest amendment of Paul's original intent. Liddell and Scott say that the particle is adversative, expressing distinct opposition and then copulative in particular circumstances, such as in explanatory clauses where there is apposition, or in answers or in questions with implied opposition. In any event, dead cannot be stripped of its adversative force. The, the, the particle is not merely a conjunction. The American Standard Version, the English Revised Version, and the World English Bible all correctly render the particle dare as but. However, each of those versions also added the word are to the text. Paul is not stating that all things are of God. Rather, Paul is making a distinction to indicate 
that those new things which have come are come from God, and they are come for the purpose of reconciliation. Therefore, and especially since Paul's statement is a citation of the prophet, Christians should be obliged to look to the word of God for what new things the prophet had prophesied would come. Because Paul is talking about these things in reference to reconciliation. That reconciliation is what we have just described from Isaiah where the word of God prophecies at great length those very same new things which would come. And Paul is describing their very fulfillment, the gospel of the new covenant in the New Testament scriptures cannot be separated from the promises of the new covenant in the Old Testament scriptures. There are clearly things in the world which are not from God. For instance, the Apostle John warns his readers in chapter 4 of his first epistle, Beloved, believe not every spirit. Try the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now already it is in the world. So all things don't come from God, according to the Apostle John. If there are spirits in the world which are not from God, then we must recognize a possibility that there are other things in the world which are not from God. And indeed, in Matthew chapter 7 we read, A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. Everything Yahweh created was good. So if Yahweh created it, it can't bring forth evil fruit. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Yahweh didn't create anything that was corrupt. Every tree that brings forth not good that brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. If every tree were from God, how could there be bad trees which cannot possibly bring forth good fruit? In the Genesis creation account, everything God created was good, and nothing was bad. Again, in the parable of the net, in Matthew chapter 13, we read, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a net. It was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind. And when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. So there are bad kinds of fish in the net which are not of God because God didn't create any bad fish. He created all the things in the sea and he saw that it was good. And these fish, allegorically, 
represent people. Therefore, there are people who even profess to be followers of Christ <clears throat> and who go so far to profess that he is Lord and who are nevertheless rejected, as we also read in Matthew chapter 7. Not every man that saith unto me, meaning Christ, Lord, Lord, that's a profession that Christ is Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Imagine that. But he that does the will of my Father who is in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. So evidently, you don't only have to say that Jesus is Lord and be saved. That's a joke. If God never knew them, how could God have created them? How could that be? The Apostle John was not talking about disembodied spirits going around denying the Christ, but rather he was talking about embodied spirits, people which were not from God. Therefore, God did not create them as they were. They were bastards. They must have been bastards. For instance, as we are told in Malachi chapter 2, that Judah had married the daughter of a strange God. These things that are bad are not from God. They are not created by God. They are not part of God's original creation. They are corruptions of God's creation. Verse 19. How that Yahweh was within Christ reconciling the society or the world to himself, not accounting their offenses to them. And only Israel was under the law, and where there is no law, sin is not accounted. So the world equals Israel. Not accounting their offenses to them and placing in us the word of that reconciliation, Israel to God. Yahweh was within Christ. Christ was God incarnate. For which we may see John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. You can't unsave yourself. My Father, which gave them to me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. For a second witness, we may also see John chapter 14. 
Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it suffices us. Jesus said unto him, Have I been with you so long a time, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Believest not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself. But the Father that dwells in me, he does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Or else believe me for the work's sake. For the same reason, in Colossians 2.9, Paul said of Christ, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. But the word rendered here, a society, is world, in all other versions, is immaterial. In Luke chapter 2, Caesar is said to have taxed all the world. And that was only the world which was subject to the Roman government. It wasn't the planet. In Acts chapter 17, it is said that the apostles turned the world upside down in reference to the effect of the gospel on the world of the Greeks, which was the same world of Luke chapter 2 that Caesar had taxed. The world was not the planet and everyone upon it, but only the Greco-Roman world of which Judea was a part and of which the children of Israel were scattered throughout. That's why Christ came to reconcile the world, not accounting their offenses to them. On the surface, Scripture appears to be divided on this issue of the world. That's because most Christians don't understand that the world is not the planet and everyone in it. On one hand, we have John chapter 3 where it says, For God so loved, and I'll translate it, even though I'm reading from the Christiania New Testament, I'll say world and not society, so that we have clarity. For God so loved the world, that he gave the most beloved son in order that each who believes in him would not be lost. He only came for the lost sheep. They can't be lost, so he's going to get them back, right? <laughs> but would have eternal life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. In agreement with this, we have... 1 John chapter 2, where it says, And he is a propitiation on behalf of our sins, not for ours only, but for the whole world. So here in Corinthians, we also see that God who is within Christ, reconciling the world to himself. On the other hand, we read the words of Christ in John chapter 17. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. Then, in the first chapter of the epistle to James, we read, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. 
So he came to save the world, but we can't keep, we can't let ourselves be soiled by the world. I guess he's going to save the world with rubber gloves in a little baggie, right? We also read likewise in chapter 4 of James, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God. So you save the world in a little baggie, and then you flush it down the toilet because it can't be its friend. Friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever will therefore be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. So Christ came to save the world, but he's the enemy of God? What's up with that? There's a division here. If Christ came to save the world, how should Christians hate the world? So apparently there must be two worlds. There is the world which God created, which requires salvation. And there is the world which is in enmity towards God because it is corrupted in sin. It is a Christian obligation to study the scripture and to be able to distinguish between these. What things in the world are of the world? What people in the world are of the world, as John says in John chapter 4? And what things in the world are from God? Because the things of the world, which are corrupted, are not from God. In John chapter 1, we see he was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. Then in Luke chapter 4, we see, and the devil take him up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered to me, and to whomever, whomsoever I wish, I will give it. Ostensibly, this is explained by John in his first epistle in chapter 5, verse 19. We know that we are from God. We are from of God. John speaking to his fellow Israelite Christians. And the whole society lies in the power of the evil one, or the whole world. There are clearly men of the world who are not from God whose destruction David seeks in the Psalms. Hear from Psalm 17. Arise, O Yahweh. Disappoint him. Cast him down. Deliver my soul from the wicked, which is thy sword. From men which are thy hand, O Yahweh. From men of the world which have their portion in this life, and whose belly thou fillest with thy hidden treasure. They are full of children, and leave the rest of their substance to their babes. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. So those people of the world had no part in that resurrection, which David hopes for. 
being conformed to his likeness. And here again from Psalm 18, Yahweh is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my buckler and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. I will call upon Yahweh who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. The sorrows of death compass me, and the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. The sorrows of hell compassed me about. The snares of death prevented me. And then to verse 16. He sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from them which hated me. For they were too strong for me. They preserved me. In the day, I'm sorry, they prevented me in the day of my calamity, but Yahweh was my stay. This same thing persists in the New Testament. Here from Luke chapter 1, from verse 67, talking about Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be Yahweh, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began that we should be saved from our enemies, as David said. I will call upon Yahweh, who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies, Zechariah said. The oath which he swore to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear, that we should be saved from our enemies. Verse 71, if you don't get that. Verse 74, that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And now, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest. For thou shalt go before the face of Yahweh to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. As Paul says here, how that Yahweh was in, within Christ reconciling the world to himself, not the world which was corrupted, not the people who are of the world, the children of Israel who are of God, who are part of the world that God created, reconciling the society to himself, not accounting to them their sins. Paul of Tarsus to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. Zechariah is the father of John. To, through the tender mercy of our God, where the day spring from on high has visited us, 
to give light to them that sit in darkness. The children of Israel, back in Isaiah chapters 42, 43, 49, 54, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew. And waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts to the day of his showing to Israel. As we have seen in Isaiah, it was the purpose of God to reconcile Israel to himself. That's the ministry of reconciliation. And this is the same purpose of the gospel outlined in the words of Zechariah, as they were recorded by Luke, and it's the same hope which David expressed in the Psalms. In Romans chapter 4, Paul explained that his ministry was to those of the faith of Abraham, who believed what Abraham believed, that his descendants, many nations, would come from his seed. Paul defined that is, Abraham's belief that many nations would come from his loins as Yahweh had promised. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul explained to them also, to the Corinthians themselves, that they too were all those nations which had descended from ancient Israel. They came from the loins of Abraham, as also were others of the pagan nations of Europe engaged in idolatry, which Paul had described as Israel according to the flesh. Paul's ministry was to turn them back from those idols, as we see it expressed in Isaiah, to turn from the idols and back to Yahweh their God through Christ. As Hananias was told of Paul's ministry by Christ himself in Acts chapter 9, go, for he is a vessel chosen by me, who is to bear my name before both the nations and kings of the sons of Israel. And that's what the Greek really says. By the time of Christ, the children of Israel had already become many nations and companies of nations in accordance with the Old Testament prophecy. And to these nations, Paul was bringing the gospel of reconciliation, which describes the reconciliation of Israel to Yahweh, their God. We will continue with this same theme in the next segment of this presentation, where we, where we may finally finish this chapter, and present 2 Corinthians chapter 6, which beckons the call to come out from among them and be separate. Them 
and touch not the unclean, them and the unclean being one and the same, them whom Christians are to come out from among cannot be of the world which Yahweh created and of the world which Christ came to save. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, German Origins, Part 2. Sunday afternoon, Christogenia, Europe, and Stan Longshanks. Good night.